Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Welcome to this edition of World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. Today, we're looking at international reaction to the deal on Iran's nuclear program. The United States and the European Union are clearly delighted by the deal struck with Iran. But some key American allies in the region, including Israel and Saudi Arabia, are clearly angry. So what happens to the regional balance of power now? Joining me to discuss the issue are John Reed, our Jerusalem correspondent, James Blitz, our security correspondent, and here in the studio is Shona Jenkins, our Middle East news editor. James, if I could start with you first, there's been a lot written about this deal, but could you just summarise for me why, in the end, the Americans and the Europeans signed off on it? What do they think they've got? Well, the deal had to be signed, and it had to be signed now. What had to happen was that the Iranian nuclear program had to be stopped in its tracks if there was to be a proper negotiation about its future. In in a nutshell, the Iranian nuclear program was heading more and more to the point where Iran could have been able to test a bomb, possibly in the latter half of next year. You had a situation where President Rouhani, the new elected Iranian leader, needed to deliver some kind of alleviation of sanctions quickly. And you had worries that the U.S. Congress was going to be slapping more sanctions on Iran, scuppering absolutely everything. So a deal was needed now. And if you look at the deal, you have to ask two questions. One, how much did the Iranians freeze the program and how much alleviation of sanctions was given by the West? And I think the short answer is the Iranians went an awfully long way, as you yourself wrote in your column this week. There is really very little of the program that is not now frozen. Everything has stopped. No stone has been left unturned. They wanted to keep open the plutonium reactor at Arak. They weren't able to do that. And at the same time, the Iranians have actually received not very much in terms of sanctions alleviation. They've received between 5 and $7 billion of unfrozen assets abroad. But when you think that the Iranians are losing something like $5 billion a month from energy and banking sanctions, which are left untouched, it's not brilliant for them. So all in all, that's why the US and EU were prepared to sign on it. But the question, of course, is how will this go down with the regional powers, in particular Israel and Saudi Arabia? Okay, well, let's address that question then. John, I mean, it sounds certainly as outlined by James as as a pretty good deal. So why are the Israelis so upset? Why have they called it a bad deal? I think some of it is a risky thing to say, but some of it's melodrama and some of it's negotiating tactics. If you listen to Netanyahu's initial reaction, he described it as a historic mistake. I mean, Israel obviously did not get what it wanted, which was an an absolute dismantling of the entire nuclear program start to finish. That said, if you look at what the security analysts are saying here, Amos Yadlin from the INSS, who's probably the dean of Israeli security analysts, described the deal as neither an historic agreement nor an historic failure. I mean, it could have been a lot worse. And I think that by taking such a hard line from the beginning, Netanyahu got a much, much better deal on the second draft than he would have otherwise. So I think, you know, again, the angry reaction is sort of positioning Israel for the next six months 
during which a final agreement is going to be thrashed out and in which Israel wants the best deal possible yet again. And Shona, I mean, it's not just the Israelis who are upset, although the Saudis have been more equivocal in their public statements. It's a fairly open secret that they're not happy with this deal. So what's upsetting the Saudi Arabians? The Saudi Arabians see Iran as almost an existential threat. It's less a fear of their nuclear program than them being sort of unleashed from the sanctions regime and being rehabilitated in its relations with the US and, and the world generally. The Saudi fears are based on three broad things. One is a threat to its security as a big power across a very small body of water. They are also very worried about their potential that Iran could mobilise the Shia minority within Saudi Arabia. This is about 10% of the population, which is mostly concentrated in the eastern province, which is the oil-producing area of the country. There is also a fear that a resumption of Iranian oil supplies into the world market will depress the oil price. Saudi Arabia needs to keep oil prices at between 80 and $90 a barrel, according to the IMF, in order to keep its spending commitments and without going into a deficit. So far, Bahrain's the only Gulf state that is running a deficit. But if projections from the IMF are true, it's quite possible that with a lower oil price, Saudi Arabia could quickly find itself running a deficit, which is something obviously they don't want. And there's also a broader kind of regional struggle for power going on. I mean, how does this play, for example, into the Syrian civil war, where the Saudis and the Iranians are very much on different sides? There is very much a, a broader threat. And I think they also feel in Riyadh that the US has not stood up for Saudi Arabia, for the Shia, for the regimes. For instance, they remember very clearly that uh, in 2011, the US, in their view, quickly abandoned Hosni Mubarak, who had been a very strong US ally for many years. There's fears of that here. There's fears that this will unleash Iranian hegemony, if you like, through the Fertile Crescent, which again is a threat to their security. And James, I mean, if the Saudis and the Israelis are to some extent share a fear of that America's pulling back from the region and a slightly less reliable ally because of the Iran deal, because of Mubarak and so on, how realistic do you think that is? I mean, is there some sort of realignment taking place? There may be a realignment taking place. It's unclear. There's certainly a lot of worries clearly in Israel that the US is pulling back and that Obama has gone for quite an easy deal. And I think that's why you've had this very shrill comment from Netanyahu all along. And I think he was, in some ways, from his point of view, right to raise a lot of concerns in the run-up to the deal in Geneva, because by doing that, he was actually focusing American minds to do as best as they possibly could. The reality is that if the Americans had signed the deal that was on offer two and a half, three weeks ago, it would have been an awful lot weaker than the one that was finally signed because they were planning to leave some work being done on the Iraq plutonium reactor. And I think the Israelis have got some genuine concerns that do need to be addressed. And I think there are two of them. The first is that the deal is basically reversible. I mean, there are two models, as the Israelis put it, for nuclear deals. One of them is Libya 2003, and the other is what happened in North Korea. In, in 2003, Gaddafi completely dismantled his nuclear program. That was it. Nothing more happened. He completely came out of it. What happened with North Korea in 2007 was it said, yes, we will stop work on the plutonium reactor at Yongbyon. And then within five years, it had restarted again. And that's something that worries the Israelis. And, and that is a concern that Iran is really only playing for time here and will fire something up. The second concern, I think, 
is that once you've done a deal like this, which alleviates sanctions to a certain extent, there's a risk that sanctions more generally start to unravel. The energy and banking sanctions in Iran are still in place, but there is a risk that a lot of people who actually want to do trading with Iran, want to get oil from Iran, will test the system. We'll start to see whether the U.S. really wants to enforce it now. And I think the Israelis would be right to be concerned that you might see a much bigger unraveling of sanctions over the next few months than had been intended. So, uh, John, as well as these kind of overall strategic concerns, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli Prime Minister, and Barack Obama have a famously difficult relationship. Mr. Netanyahu, it seemed to me, came quite close to endorsing Mitt Romney during the last presidential election. So is the Netanyahu government, do you think, going to try to rally its friends, its many friends in the United States, to take on the Obama administration and get a better deal? Oh, I think without doubt. I think it's already happening Israel is lining up allies through APAC, through Netanyahu's very deep relations in Congress to basically keep fire under the feet of Obama and, and the administration through, through the next six months of negotiations. I think there's no question they'll play every card they can. Now, I think there'll be some discussion in Israel about whether this is a wise thing to do. Amos Yadlin, who I mentioned earlier, the security analyst, is, is arguing that Israel should, in fact, sit tight and be cooperative and not try to sabotage the agreement let negotiations take their course, because then in six months' time, if Iran's not complying, the onus will be on them, and Israel and the world is then free to draw the appropriate conclusions. And Shona, I mean, how will the Saudis play it? Because obviously they don't have the same kind of network, and yet they are upset. Do they really have any alternative to the American special relationship then? I don't think they do. The relationship is predicated on a quid pro quo of a stability in oil prices in return for US protection, essentially. And they don't really have any other options. There's no other player that can provide that level of protection. So that is why you've got an official grudging acceptance, very quiet reaction to the deal from Geneva last weekend, whereas you're having commentators and unofficial figures close to the regime sounding far more hawkish on it. But in reality, there's very, very little they can do at the moment to change the way this uh, relationship works. And long term, perhaps it's an unanswerable question, but I'll try on it anyway. If there was a real opening with Iran, would it be possible to see Iran reintegrated into the regional order and America eventually enjoying a reasonably normal relationship with Iran, and therefore kind of being able to distance itself a little bit from Saudi Arabia. Is that what the Saudis fear, essentially? Well, it's very difficult to know what the Saudis actually feel because it's very opaque. But I think that the relationship has always been predicated on a, a certain amount of real politique. So in some ways, rehabilitated Iranian relationship could be of use in places like Afghanistan, for instance, for the US. Whereas when it comes to, for instance, the peace process, Saudi Arabia has been very helpful in the past on that. So maybe there won't be such a dramatic shift. Maybe it will just be governed a little bit more by what's in the US interest on a short term issue rather than a very fixed protection in the face of anything, which is how it is at the moment. Right. And, and James, for the broader regional issues, in particular, the Syrian conflict, again, we might be getting ahead of ourselves, but is some sort of rapprochement with Iran potentially a way of opening the door to ending what is a really sort of tragic and bloody conflict, which doesn't seem to be uh, getting any better? Well, I think one has to hope so. I mean, the reality for Iran is that, of course, it's propping up Assad, and it has done very firmly, indeed, in many ways, it's running large chunks of Assad's military operation on the ground. 
The trouble for the Iranians is that they are hemorrhaging an enormous amount of money and materiel propping up Assad these days, and they have been for quite a while. And so I think the question that arises is whether, now that they've done this interim deal with the U.S., whether they might be in a better position to try and start shifting the balance there, if you like, and trying to move things towards a wider deal. Now, whether that is going to happen, I, it's just impossible to say at this stage. I mean, the real question in the end, I think, in 2014, is still going to be whether the hardliners, the people around Hamenei, really want to give up on the bomb. I mean, that is still, although we've got an interim deal, it is still an unknown question because this has to be finalized in a much deeper accord if Western sanctions are going to be removed completely. And that requires the dismantling of the infrastructure. And that's the first thing that still needs to be worked out. And I'm still not sure that that can happen. If it does happen, then I really do think a much wider range of shifts in Iranian foreign policy are possible. But it's still unclear whether that really big step of saying, right, we'll do things like close the four-hour second enrichment plant, for instance, whether things like that are really on the Iranian mind. We just don't know. Well, thank you, James, for introducing a necessary note of caution after what was quite an exciting weekend over the Iranian deal. Thanks to James Blitz for joining me. Thanks also to Shona Jenkins and to John Reed in Jerusalem. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.